This version of the Room Now podcast is dedicated to highlights from ULAR 2022. Herein, you will hear reports and perspectives from the Room Now faculty and key opinion leaders in rheumatology. Enjoy. Hi, my name's Peter Nash. I'm a professor of rheumatology, School of Medicine, Griffith University, beautiful downtown Brisbane in Australia. And we're here at ULAR Copenhagen 2022, reporting for Room Now. So yesterday was the big recommendations day. And first of all, we're going to talk about a summary of the update to the AXPAR guidelines that were presented yesterday by Robert Landaway. So uh, there was really very little difference. There was five overarching principles didn't change. There was 15 recommendations. And if we try and summarise it, the recommendations brought TNFs, IL-17s and JAK inhibitors as alternate first-line choice after the usual anti-inflammatories, after the usual physiotherapy and non-pharmacological treatments. So they preface that by adding that the current the current practice was TNF and IL-17 rather than the JAK inhibitor and I think that reflects some concern about the whole oral surveillance and that whole story that needs to be sorted out. Of course they said if you've got recurrent uveitis, if you've got inflammatory bowel disease then a monoclonal TNF is the way to go and in those patients with bad psoriasis for example the IL-17s are the way to go. Now the other point he made because there's tendency with MRI to overdiagnose, they suggested if there's, if there's treatment failure, please reassess the diagnosis again and make sure that you're not over-treating changes from pregnancy, changes that you'll see on MRI that are not due to inflammation. And of course, they finished with non-evidence-based recommendations on switching and non-evidence-based recommendations on tapering because another abstract of this meeting shows that if you taper and cease, 90% of people will flare over the next length of time. So that's the AXPAR recommendations for the management of that group of diseases. Signing off room now, look forward to more presentations. Hi, this is Dr. Robert Chow, reporting uh, virtually from ULAR 2022 uh, for room now. And I wanted to discuss topic today. I think a lot of us in rheumatology are sort of a question that we're posed with uh, on a daily basis, which is, you know, when can we stop a medicine? And I see this often where before I even talk about uh, the new TNF inhibitor or the new biologic we're going to start and potentially the side effect profile, the first question I'm faced with is, is doc, you know, when can I stop it? Do I have to be on this forever? Um, and that can be a difficult con uh, conversation to have uh, at times. And this is what uh, this abstract uh, OP0261 focused on. And they looked at a treat to target a tapering strategy of TNF inhibitors in the uh, treatment of psoriatic arthritis and axial spondyloarthritis patients. Um, these patients were randomized, controlled, uh, and this was a non-inferiority trial. Uh, of patients who use TNF inhibitors for uh, at least uh, more than six months with stable uh, low disease activity. These patients were then randomized to a treat to target uh, tapering or no tapering strategy, and they were followed for 12 months. And just by the way, the tapering was uh, three monthly steps of 66%, 50%, and of course, 0%. 
Overall, 122 patients were enrolled and 69% of the tapering group remain in low disease activity and 73% of the no tapering group remain in low disease activity. At 12 months, 72% of patients successfully tapered without flare and 28% were even able to discontinue the TNF inhibitor. This study found that tapering was non-inferior to a no tapering strategy. Um, however, this study did also find there was an increased use of other medicines, uh, such as NSAIDs, uh, conventional DMARDs, and even steroids in the tapering arm. So I think studies like this can help us better answer questions that we uh, receive from patients in the future. We do know that medications like biologics, especially TNF inhibitors, pose an increased uh, inf infection risk, patient burden, and of course, cost. Um, we think, I think we can use this strategy perhaps even as a blueprint for discussing tapering with patients who we think are at least in low disease activity for a period of time. And lastly, I do want to focus on, you know, we discussed tapering and stopping and TNF inhibitor, which can be a, a big milestone for a lot of uh, folks. Um, but the question I would pose is at what cost? You know, if we're tapering or, or stopping a medication, but then substituting that with daily NSAIDs, uh, another DMARD, or God forbid, daily prednisone for prolonged periods of time, is that really a win? Or are we just substituting one with, with another evil, if you will? So I think these are all questions to be had. Uh, but thanks for tuning in. This is uh, Dr. Robert Chow again reporting uh, virtually from ULAR 2022 uh, for Room Now. And please follow me on Twitter at Dr. RBC. Thanks. My name is Professor Peter Nash, School of Medicine, Griffith University, beautiful downtown Brisbane in Australia. I'm reporting on Room Now for ULAR Copenhagen 2022. Uh, paper presented yesterday by Atoll Diodar's group was talking about secukinumab and the dosing of secukinumab in ankylosing spondylitis. We certainly have lots of questions, particularly from my European and Middle East colleagues, where they really, for, for cost reasons, only use the 150 milligram dose. And our personal experience is people do very well 150 weekly for a month, but then when they go to monthly 150, a percentage breakthrough and it's not enough for them. So in our country where we can, we routinely use 300 milligrams. So they did a study to try and to examine this exact issue. They took people from a large cohort who were in remission for an ex at 16 weeks on 150 milligrams. And they looked at the, then the non-responders and they split the, the group into 150 doing well, continued 150. 150 not doing well either went to 300 or continued 150 and guess what at the end of 52 weeks there was no benefit going to the higher dose which is certainly not our experience. They looked at every possible outcome measure, ASDAS, low disease activity, inactivity, remission etc and there didn't seem to be a difference in the non-responder going to the higher dose. Again that's not our experience clinically. No safety penalty for the higher dose. So the take-home message is 150 should work but I still don't believe it, even though the study showed it very clearly. Back to Jack, more Room Now presentations to follow. Hi, I'm Dr. Janet Pope. I'm reporting here live at ULAR 2022 in Copenhagen. Um, this is a hybrid meeting and I had the opportunity to come 
for real live for a first major meeting um, since COVID started. So I'm going to talk about axial PSA. And my question for you is, is it for real? So we know that in psoriatic arthritis, there are multiple advanced therapies approved, but that some drugs haven't shown a positive response in axial PSA. And by axial PSA, that's a bit different than ankylosing spondylitis. It might be unilateral, there might be skip lesions, HLA-B27 isn't as common. And sometimes it's say neck and a unilateral sacroiliac or it's thoracic and a low lumbar, but it can skip around. We also know that this is important enough that GRAPA, one of the international societies that looks at psoriatic arthritis, is actually trying to find a clinical criteria. So I'm going to talk to you about a study. So this is a study looking at clinical aspects in psoriatic arthritis. And what this study looks at was by Dr. Henriette Kading, and she's looking at a cohort of patients with psoriatic arthritis with axial spa. Number one, everybody was screened with their PSA in the cohort for having an MRI of the low back or sometimes the entire spine, depending. So they wanted to meet criteria currently for axial PSA. The next thing that is really, I think, kind of interesting is that one quarter of patients with psoriatic arthritis whom they scanned had axial PSA with no pain. And we're talking about 88 patients in total. So that's about 20 some patients. The next thing of interest was that MRI imaging patterns of axial PSA and the 86 patients were highly variable. Unilateral sacroiliitis, um, versus bilateral, skip lesions versus not, peripheral arthritis with axial versus not. So there were a lot of different patterns. And again, why is this important? It's important because these sorts of patients will be studied and, and we really need to know if our advanced therapies um, IL-23 is a, for instance, if they're going to work in axial PSA, if they actually work in ankylosing spondylitis. So I think it is a different entity. I think it's a hot topic. And the bottom line is more will come. So follow us at Room Now, and I'm at Janet Burdope. Thank you. I'm Anthony Chen, consultant rheumatologist from the United Kingdom. I'm reporting here for Room Now at ULA 2022 in Copenhagen. There have been a lot of interesting presentations in the field of spondyloarthritis, and we'd like to share with you a plenary session that was held today, looking into the topic of axial psoriatic arthritis as compared to axial spondyloarthritis. This has been a topic that has been going on for some time now, whether there are separate entities or whether they are of the same condition, uh, but just an overlap between two different presentations. So in this plenary session today, uh, we heard from Professor Philip Halliwell from Leeds, who talked about the history behind the classification of psoriatic arthritis and led into the discussion with regards to whether these are similar conditions or whether they are separate. So firstly, axial psoriatic arthritis is the presence of axial symptoms or spinal symptoms in a patient with psoriatic arthritis whereas in axial spondyloarthritis, the predominant feature is that of the axial skeleton uh, with no or little psoriasis in the presence of uh, symptoms in the spine. Now, we do know that the presentation of um, 
uh, in patients with psoriatic arthritis, up to a third of patients may have axial symptoms, and they may not present in the same way as a patient with axial uh, spondyloarthritis does. So the concept was uh, dis discussed today about possibly two groups. Firstly, in patients with psoriatic arthritis, they can have the classic uh, phenotype, which where they present just like a patient with axial spondyloarthritis, or they can have the alternative phenotype. So the alternative phenotype talks about patients who may have fewer symptoms in the spine in the presence of psoriatic arthritis. There is less symmetry, so they may have more unilateral form of uh, spondyloarthritis in the sacroiliac joints. There is increased cervical spine involvement, and the syndesmophytes are also slightly different compared to the classical form. And again, these patients may present uh, later in life, so they tend to be older compared to the axial SPA patients. They have less back pain, less inflammatory back pain symptoms. There are more females than males in this group, and there's less limitation of movements. So often these patients may not present in a classical way like axial spondyloarthritis does, but they may present sometimes as a finding on x-rays that we do or MRIs that we do, and then that leads to the to the detection of the axial symptoms in a patient with psoriatic arthritis. So Professor Halliwell also discussed about the not only the clinical phenotype, but also the genetics. There is a lower uh, prevalence of HLA-B27 in people with axial PSA. So this is uh, between 19 to 40%. But there are other genes that are important, such as HLA-B8 and HLA-B38, which is more strongly expressed in the axial PSA group as compared to the axial SBA group. Now, is this important? Why are we discussing this? Uh, it's important because, firstly, we do not want to delay the diagnosis to in patients with, with psoriatic arthritis may have axial symptoms. It is one of the six domains that we have to look into. And also because there are effective therapies now that uh, such as IL-17 inhibitors, IL-23 inhibitors which may have a differential effect on the peripheral joints as opposed to the spinal joints. So it's important for us to identify these patients and then classify them because the treatments are maybe slightly different depending on their phenotype. And because of this uh, interest, there's also a poster uh, that I picked. This is the oral presentation 0026. Uh, this is from uh, Kerding and colleagues uh, from Germany, and they looked at the GASPIC cohort. And again, this question is again answered in this study where they look at this large cohort where a third of patients with psoriatic arthritis had axial symptoms. Uh, more than half of them, 55% were female. Only 45% were HLA-B27 positive. And most interestingly, only 20%, one-fifth of these patients had sacroiliac joint involvement, uh, whereas the rest of them had the spinal involvement. So there is clearly an overlap in, in some of these patients, but also the study is showing us that they are slightly different. They tend to be more female, less B27, and less involvement of the sacroiliac joint compared to the remainder of the spine. But equally, uh, a significant number of them had inflammatory back pain, 75%. Of them, 45% met New York criteria for ankylosing spondylitis. And in these patients, they also had sacroiliac involvement. So there are things that, um, that may result in them looking the same as XPA, but equally we're starting to understand that there are many other features that are teasing them apart and making them separate from axial uh, spondyloarthritis. What 
it appears that we do need research into the whole field of axial PSA and also better classification and definition of this condition in order for us to do clinical trials in the future. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm Anthony Chan reporting for Room Now from Copenhagen. Hi, Ron. I'm Jack Kush. I'm here at ULR 2022 in Copenhagen. Uh, and I'm pleased to introduce to you Dr. Sophia Romero. Sophia is um, well known in the field of spondyloarthritis. She comes to us from Leiden University Medical Center in the Netherlands. Good afternoon, Sophia. Good afternoon, uh, Jack. Okay, so we're going to talk about the new um, ASAS um, ULAR guidelines on AXPA. Um, how did you get interested in AXPA? Well, AXPA has been my focus of uh, research in the last 10 years. If I'm very honest with you, it's ended up on my plate because my supervisors uh, uh, decided that that would be my PhD topic. But I'm very thankful to that opportunity because nowadays it's really what I'm mostly interested in and what I'm fascinated about. I think it, there's so much that we don't know yet that uh, I, I really, I'm, I'm, I'm really curious about investigating it further. Well, we certainly need more people like you. I've been following you at past ACRs and ULARs. I love your research. I love your interest. Um, we asked you here to talk about these new guidelines. T uh, take us through the process of how these guidelines came to be. Sure. So in 2016, we issued the last version of the, this recommendation. So also a share, shared recommendations between others in ULAR. And since then, a lot of evidence has accumulated. So there's more, there was more evidence on new drugs with new modes of action and also a tree-to-target trial that had been conducted. So we thought it was the moment to conduct an update. So we, we gathered again a task force and again a joint project between Aziz and Euler. We conducted this task force and we got uh, into this uh, management uh, recommendations and to this update of 2022 of the AXPA management recommendations. Uh, we were 33 members uh, involved and more than half of the members were new compared to the new to the last version. So we, we think that's also good because we are bringing fresh blood into the, the group. And, and then, um, and that's how we, we, we uh, due to COVID, we had to have an online meeting. It was cha challenging, but it was very fruitful and productive. And I, I think we are all very proud of what uh, the end product of these recommendations is. Okay, so as usually the case in these kind of gui uh, new guidelines and recommendations, there are overarching principles and then key recommendations. Any of those that you want to highlight for us? Yeah, definitely. So uh, in total, we have, you're totally right, we have five uh, overarching principles and we have 15 recommendations. I would like to emphasize this, uh, that these are recommendations over the entire spectrum of actual SPA, so uh, including non-radiographic and radiographic actual SPA. It's also recommendations on both non-pharmacological and pharmacological treatment. And although I have more to tell about pharmacological treatment, because those are mostly the recommendations that have been updated, because that's the area in which there have, have been more updates, I would like to emphasize the importance of non-pharmacological treatment. In this, this is cross-sectional to many diseases, but I would say that in actual SPA, this is particularly important. And the task force emphasized that again. And on NSAIDs remain the first line of pharmacological uh, treatment. And as before, we have criteria to start biological VMARTs. At this time, also targeted synthetic VMARTs were added. So now the criteria are to start either a biologic or a targeted synthetic VMART. And 
the what what changed most is that now we have the ASDAS uh, disease activity criterion as the the criterion to select patients to include or to start treatment with biological or targeted synthetic DMARDs. So an ASDAS of 2.1 is the criterion uh, to identify patients with high disease activity uh, because of the accumulated uh, superiority of the ASDAS towards uh, the BASDAI. In the last version of the recommendations, we had both uh, either the ASDAS criterion or the BASDAI criterion. In this uh, recommendations, the task force decided, based on the accumulated evidence, to, to make the choice for the criterion that has shown the best performance. So an ASAS of at least 2.1 is the criterion to decide upon uh, high disease activity for eligibility of biological or targeted synthetic DMARDs. And then we have the, the indication for, for treatment. So we uh, the task force uh, uh, indicated or, or recommended that when and when there is the indication for treatment, uh, any of the drug classes can be started. So either TNF inhibitors, IL-17 inhibitors, or JAK inhibitors. Uh, JAK inhibitors are a new drug class, a new mode of action in actual SPA compared to the previous version of the recommendations. And due to accumulated evidence and safety and data and experience with mainly TNF inhibitors, but also IL-17 inhibitors, the task force emphasized that current practice, although any of the drug classes can be started, current practice is to start either a TNF inhibitor or an IL-17 inhibitor. Uh, then furthermore, we have a new recommendation emphasizing the importance of extra musculoskeletal manifestations. So uveitis, IBD, or psoriasis, as this often guides a therapeutic decision, and we have data on that. So therefore, in the presence of recurrent uveitis or IBD, uh, the task force recommends to give preference to TNF monoclonal antibodies. And when patient has significant psoriasis, then an IL-17 inhibitor should be preferred. There's also another new recommendation focusing on uh, treatment failure because this is something that uh, is common and we see in daily clinical practice. And whenever we see treatment failure, the task force is of the opinion that that should trigger a reevaluation of the diagnosis of the patient. So really uh, reconsider whether the diagnosis is the correct one, whether the patient really has actual SPA, and also consider whether there are there is the presence of comorbidities that are influencing the assessment of the disease activity and also outcomes of the disease and treatment outcomes. So this is important uh, to consider. And when active uh, actual SPA is confirmed, then indeed a switch to another biological or targeted synthetic DMARDs is recommended. And here, due to the lack of data uh, in, in what concerns switches between the different modes of action, we only have trials with patients failing IL-17 inhibitors, sorry, failing TNF inhibitors and getting IL-17 inhibitors. We do not have trials with patients switching between the other drug uh, modes of drugs from the other modes of action, but the task force decided that any switch would be uh, recommended. And lastly, when patients are in sustained remission, tapering uh, should be considered, and this is tapering of biological DMARDs because there is absolutely no data on tapering of targeted synthetic DMARDs, we decided to not make a recommendation or to not expand the recommendation uh, to that. And I think this is uh, the focus are of the recommendations that were mostly updated or actually two uh, totally new recommendations as I indicated to you. So you, I like that these are updated from 2016, that you focused in on the 
ASDAS disease activity measure as an indication for these advanced therapies. Has that yet become a standard in routine practice in Europe that that to start a new biologic or targeted synthetic, you really have to show evidence of that greater than 2.1? Um, just for clinical trials. No, it has become uh, it has become practice. And as I said in the previous version of the recommendations, we had uh, the the recommendation that to start biological DMARDs. At that time, we did not have targeted synthetic DMARDs. We would need either an ASDAS above 2.1 or a BASDI above uh, uh, equal or above four. And so at that moment, any of the two was recommended, and this is daily clinical practice. Uh, of course, that doesn't mean everyone does it, but it's highly recommended. And what I see and what we see in the last 10 years is that not only disease activity is increasingly more measured, but also ASDAS is becoming more and more used in daily clinical practice. So I think this is uh, implementation has, has certainly started, is ongoing, can always be improved. And I also think that these recommendations can uh, give some help on that because if we clearly recommend which is the best disease activity measure to use in daily clinical practice and which is the best to use to make a selection and of, on the eligibility of patients for treatment, then I think we are also giving a clear message to clinicians that this is the, the measure that needs to be assessed in daily clinical practice. Do the ACES-UR guidelines address treat-to-target? Um, yes. There is a recommendation on that was unchanged. I didn't mention it. That there is a recommendation that uh, there uh, should be. It is recommended that there is a treatment target. It is on purpose formulated, on somewhat vague and not specific, because there is no agreement on which target there should be and how we should treat to target or not. We are, of course, aware of the TICOSPA, the only trial treat to target trial that exists in actual SPA which is a trial that has, is, is challenging inter, in, interpreting, in interpreting it because its primary end, uh, endpoint was not man, met. So that means that formally it's a negative trial. It was 30% improvement in the ASAS health index. But if we look at disease activity uh, endpoints, several of them were met. And those were the endpoints that were used in other treat-to-target uh, trials in, in other diseases. So it's quite challenging to take definite conclusions on treat-to-target in actual SPA. But the bottom line is some treat-to-target principles apply, probably not thoroughly measuring it and, and blindly uh, in, uh, escalating treatment whenever uh, an ASDAS or a target is not met, but uh, it's good to keep it in mind and it's good to have a, a treatment target agreed with the patient. That is what our recommendations state. Um, what do you, are, is there a role for imaging in these guidelines as far as guidings of therapies or choice of therapies? Uh, as these are uh, treatment recommendations and not, so they would, the question would only be in terms of uh, uh, choice of therapies, guiding therapies, and for the eligibility of uh, treatment with biological or targeted synthetic DMARDs, I did not mention that because that's unchanged compared to the previous recommendations, but patients should have either elevated uh, CRP and or a positive imaging, a positive MRI of the sacroiliac joints. Uh, and or patients being uh, having radiographic sacroiliitis, so patients having uh, radiographic actual SPA or, or uh, ankylosing spondylitis. The last one is for historical reasons because uh, trials have been first conducted and, and drugs have been approved only in, in radiographic actual SPA and in non-radiographic actual SPA, 
particularly, but this also applies to radiographic actual SPA. We know that if patients have either an elevated CRP and or a positive MRI of the sacroiliac joints, they have a higher likelihood of response to treatment. And that's why these are criteria for eligibility of patients to treatment. I like that the uh, guidelines address the extra uh, spinal manifestations of the disease. That's really important to those who treat this. Do, do they also address comorbidity other than to say it's something you need to be aware of? That's an overarching principle on the one hand, uh, that the, uh, the, uh, the whole spectrum of the patient, including comorbidities, should be uh, taken care of and should be considered, as you mentioned. The other recommendation, that is the new recommendation that I mentioned, when there is a failure to treatment, then there is the new recommendation to reconsider whether the diagnosis is correct. And if yes, whether it, there could be the presence of comorbidities that are justifying or that are contributing to justify the patient not meeting uh, a good response or not achieving a good response to treatment. And that should be eventually considered when assessing the disease or, or, or assessing treatment outcomes. So we don't have a clear or specific recommendations on how to approach specific comorbidities, but not only to be aware of them, but specifically in, in when there is treatment failure to uh, proactively look for comorbidities that can be in the source of this and can justify this. Well, I think that these guidelines are a big step forward. We'll look forward not only to the presentation um, today, but also the, the uh, publication of the paper. So, Sophia, thank you so much for your time. Enjoy the meeting. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Jack. You too. Thank you. I'm Anthony Chan. I'm consultant rheumatologist uh, from the United Kingdom, and I'm reporting here for a room now at EULA 2022 in Copenhagen. And I'm giving you an update today on um, important topics in the field of spondyloarthritis. And I want to highlight a few important abstracts. The first one is in the field of psoriatic arthritis. Uh, we know that in the field of psoriatic arthritis, uh, one of the issues is about the conversion of patients who first have psoriasis and then the later development of psoriatic arthritis. So in, um, in the oral presentation 0029 by Grobelski and colleagues, uh, this question was being asked. So traditionally, a dermatologist would see these patients first when they have psoriasis. And we do know that there are certain features such as nail involvement and scalp involvement which may predispose them into getting psoriatic arthritis at a later stage. There are questionnaires, such as the PASS questionnaire, that are used to try to identify earlier these patients who may develop the arthritic component of psoriasis, but they are not as specific or sensitive. And therefore, in this study, they, they did something very novel, was they trained the dermatologists to use ultrasound, handheld ultrasound, to see if they could detect uh, psoriatic arthritis earlier in patients with psoriasis. In the study, they had 140 patients with, with psoriasis who uh, they assessed and then later was um, confirmed whether they did or did not have psoriatic arthritis by the rheumatologist. So the interesting finding is that before the ultrasound, the sensitivity uh, was 81% and the specificity 55% uh, of these patients having psoriatic arthritis. After having a clinical evaluation and post-ultrasound, the sensitivity uh, dropped to 62%, but the specificity increased to 91%. So essentially, it is showing us that the targeted use of ultrasound improved the accuracy of 
um, the detection of psoriatic arthritis. It improved the referral rates and the accuracy of the referral that goes to the rheumatologist. So this would, could be something that we could uh, adopt and use in our clinic on top of clinical assessment and questionnaires that we have uh, at the moment. I thought this was very interesting, especially as we're trying to detect uh, psoriatic arthritis earlier and treat it early in the patients who have psoriasis. Fatigue is another big issue in psoriatic arthritis in this uh, poster. Uh, in the oral presentation 0025 by Raman and colleagues. They looked at the data from the DISCOVER 1 and 2 study. The DISCOVER 1 and 2 study is the phase 3 trial of Kuselkumab, which is an IL-23 um, inhibitor in psoriatic arthritis. But they looked in the, the aspect of fatigue. They used a score called the FACET score, uh, and which is a score from 0 to 52. And the higher the score, the less fatigue they had. And they look at the components as to what contributes most to fatigue. And they, they found that systemic disease, so having generalized systemic disease, contributed about 34% to the variability of fatigue. Next was joints. So you had joint symptoms that contributed 16% to the variation in fatigue. Next was skin involvement, which was 12%. But interestingly, in 39% of this uh, study, they were not sure as to what were the factors that dr drove the fatigue. So these were the residuals. And again, this is a big area for research. Could this be biochemical? Could this be physical, psychological factors? That could also be important components that we could target in the future as we try to uh, improve uh, uh, patients' uh, condition by reducing the fatigue, as fatigue remains the number one uh, patient-reported outcome uh, on top of pain uh, that patients have in terms of their day-to-day -day living. So a very interesting study. I think we need more studies into this whole area of uh, fatigue. Another interesting poster was uh, the whole idea of non-radiographic axial spa and its progression to radiographic uh, SBA or what we call ankylosing spondylitis. And this is a five-year multinational study. Uh, it's oral presentation 0149 by Podatni and colleagues. Uh, this is a five-year study from the PROOF study which was uh, looking at how many patients progress from the non-radiographic form to the radiographic form, which is ankylosing spondylitis. We know that from previous studies, uh, this is a huge range. Um, newly diagnosed patients currently, uh, 20 to 80% of our newly diagnosed expar patients are non-radiographic, and 8 to 40% of them would progress to the radiographic form over 2 to 10 years. But this is from surveys and, uh, and population studies. But the PROOF study was a, was a study of 2,633 patients. And they looked uh, sequentially at uh, over five years how many progressed. And 16% of patients progressed from a non-radiographic to a radiographic form in five years. The mean time to progression to radiographic was 2.4 years. So this gives us an understanding of perhaps there are certain groups of people where we could consider more targeted therapies. And who are they? These are male patients, so the male gender predisposed to quicker radiographic progression. If they had good response to NSAIDs at the beginning, suggesting a more inflammatory type disease in these patients, and also the presence of HLA-B27 predisposed to this uh, quicker progression to, uh, radio, to radiographic forms. So this is an, another area for research, another areas that we could target with more advanced therapies, 
but also to study the other group which didn't progress as quick uh, because there also might be factors there that could help us to understand this whole concept of a radiographic progression. So I think these are the three um, uh, abstracts and posters that I want to share with you from uh, EULA 2022 in Copenhagen. And thank you for your attention. I'm Anthony Chan reporting for Room Now. Hi, this is Dr. Robert Chow reporting virtually from ULAR 2022 for Room Now. Uh, as we wrap up uh, this conference, uh, I wanted to share with you one of the late breaking abstracts, which is LB0001. Uh, this was an abstract focusing on bimekizumab. Uh, this was a phase three placebo controlled, randomized controlled trial on the safety and efficacy of bimekizumab, which we know is an IL-17A and IL-17F inhibitor uh, used in the treatment of biologic naive patients with active psoriatic arthritis. Patients were randomized to bimekizumab 160 milligrams every month, uh, placebo, and notably there is also a adalimumab arm uh, standard dosing of 40 milligrams every two weeks. The primary endpoint here was ACR50 at week 16, and overall, 44% of bimekizumab patients uh, did reach that primary endpoint compared to 10% of the placebo arm. Adalimumab was similar at 45.7%. Uh, notably, bimekizumab seemed uh, to work as early as week two, which is very promising. Um, and secondary endpoints were also all met. In terms of side effects, uh, serious adverse effects are similar amongst all groups, uh, roughly 1%. The most frequent adverse effect was nasopharyngitis, upper respiratory infections, and candida infections. Uh, there were no major malignancy differences, no uh, MACE events, no uveitis, inflammatory bowel disease, or deaths. So I think overall, this is a, a very good study with promising results. Um, however, when you look uh, deeper into the data, uh, ACR50 uh, was roughly the same between bemakizumab and adalimumab but there was a noticeable difference in the PASI 90 and PASI 100 scores between the two. Um, and this is something that I think we already know, which is IL-17 inhibitors tend to do much better in treating skin psoriasis. And really for the treatment of psoriatic arthritis, it seems that every new biologic on the market tends to be roughly the same and uh, I think we may still be guided ultimately by potentially insurance companies, by the side effect profile, and really sometimes by what we cannot use or offer to a patient. Um, so I think the search continues. Um, it's good that we have another tool in our arsenal, but the search continues for a biologic that could potentially separate itself from the pack uh, for the treatment of psoriatic arthritis. So thanks again for tuning in. Um, this is Dr. Robert Chow reporting uh, virtually from ULAR 2022. And please uh, follow me at Dr. RBC. Thanks. Hi, everyone. This is Aurelie Nash from Glasgow, live from Copenhagen for day three of ULAR. I have had an amazing day. 
so many uh, nice presentations that I'm dying to share with you. Um, one of them was specifically of interest to me and, and might also I should be of interest to you as this is a question for which I did not have any answer up to now. Um, we know that in rheumatoid arthritis, there have been quite a lot of um, studies looking into tapering TNF inhibitors in patients that are in remission. Um, however, there was absolutely no data on PSA or AXPAT patients. Um, this is why uh, today OP061 uh, kind of answered uh, uh, my questions. Um, so it's um, been a randomized clinical trial, open label, where they have um, actually included patients that have PSA or AXA. They were randomized two to one, um, and they had to be in low dose activity for more than six months. So they have um, a, a, a sustained remission. Um, so the way they've been uh, randomized um, and the way it's been tapered down was um, for those in the tapering group, um, 66%, then 50%, and then stop um, over the course of a few months. So quite um, rapid um, tapering down. And um, the, um, uh, the, the low disease activity was considered um, if the PASDAS was inferior to 3.2 or if the ASDAS was inferior to 2.1 in the AXPA population. So um, there were not a lot of patients, only 81 in the tapering group and 41 is the non-tapering and there were repairs um, approximately half, half uh, PSA and half AXPA. So um, through the three monthly tapering, um, they, 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 they looked at one year, the, pr the proportion of patients that were still in remission. And in both group, it was a non-inferiority trial, by the way, in both group, uh, roughly around 70% of patients were still in remission at 12 months. So there was no difference um, in terms of remission. Um, however, there's something that, you know, make me wonder um, when it comes to those patients that were tapered down for whom there was a need to introduce concomitant medication. Um, so if you look into this specifically, there were quite, um, at least one third of the patient that required glucocorticoids in the tapering group, as opposed to 17% in the non-tapering group. Um, it was not significant, but again, the, number, the numbers were low. Um, and um, however, for um, NSAIDs, there was a significant increase with um, half of the patients in the tapering group that needed um, increased uh, NSAIDs dosage compared to the other one. So, um, I mean, I think it's quite interesting data. Um, now the question is, would you uh, actually decide to um, taper down in a patient if you know that there's a one chance out of three that you will need to give them glucocorticoids over the course of the year? Um, I mean, this is, this is something, I guess maybe there's a thing 
would, that is needed would be to probably define better the tapering strategy and obviously try and find biomarkers to know what patients are going to remain in sustained remission while tapering and those questions we still don't have the answers yet um and 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 but i think it's it's a good it's a good uh, trial and it's something uh, to start with um at least in this in this area so um i'm gonna stop here i invite you to go uh, online on rumnow.com for more content um follow me on twitter follow rum now and uh stay tuned for the last day of the conference tomorrow bye hello i'm anthony chan a consultant rheumatologist uh, and i'm here reporting for room now by uh, dula 2022 in copenhagen and today i want to cover the topic of imaging in the area of psoriatic arthritis and also excess arthritis. some really interesting presentations here in copenhagen the first one was an oral presentation from the uh, augustino uh, it's uh, op260 where they looked at the use of ultrasound in imaging psoriatic arthritis. Now we are very used to using power Doppler, but what they showed in this study is that in addition to power Doppler, there's another component of grayscale called synovial hypertrophy, which can also be useful. And this study was looking into the use of sacukinumab in patients who receive sacukinumab, and also those who switch from placebo into the sacukinumab uh, treatment arm. And when they looked at the reduction in synovitis over the 52-week uh, period, what appeared to be very important was also the synovial hypertrophy score in addition to the power Doppler. And so this then re resulted in a reduction in the synovitis seen uh, that we see clinically and also as a response to treatment. So I think this is telling us that in addition to what we usually see with power Doppler, we should also be concentrating on synovial hypertrophy on the grayscale. And what they have suggested is probably a combination score using both these components to measure outcome for patients with psoriatic arthritis. The next oral presentation, which was very interesting today, was from uh, Ramin, uh, OP256, which looked at the whole idea of PET scan in uh, psoriatic arthritis. Now, we are used to using PET scan to look for inflammation and we use the, uh, the FDG type PET scan. But this is a new... Um, PET scan using fibroblast activation protein or FAP. So this is called the FAP CT scan. And what it does is measures mesenchymal tissue activation. And what we are looking for is tissue response uh, or structural change rather than purely inflammation, which is what we see in traditional uh, FDG PET scans. And in this study, they had 120 patients and they were radio labeled with gallium. So these were FAP inhibitors, uh, radio labeled with gallium gallium and they looked at the prevalence of the uptake of the FAP scan in, in patients with psoriatic arthritis. It correlated very well with pain scores around the synovium and also the antecial sites. This correlated very well with how patients were reporting pain and perhaps telling us that beyond inflammation there might actually be a stress or tissue response that might be causing the pain. And what was very interesting is that when they correlated this with MRI, in patients who had persistent uptake of these uh, areas where they were not treated adequately, that led to radiographic change on the MRI in the longer term. Uh, in, in the opposite way, patients who were treated with anticytokine therapies, there was a reduction in the scores and that correlated with better outcomes in terms of uh, the MRI longer term. So this is telling us another new way of imaging uh, perhaps some of these patients who may not have typical 
CRP response, so very a lot of swollen joints, that there could be a target for us to treat in the long term. And the last study that I'm going to talk to you about is um, Poster 0126, and this is how you can use CT scans uh, looking at subchondral bone coefficient or something called SPAC, where this is useful in terms of differentiating ankylosing spondylitis and uh, OCI, which is osteitis condensans ivy, which is another bone abnormality often seen in patients who after pregnancy. And when they looked at this, the patients who had OCI had a much higher SPAC score, uh, above 7,500 pounds per units. Whereas in patients with AS and also DISH had a much lower score, somewhere in the range of 3 to 3,500. And the healthy controls were in between. So this tells, in addition to plain radiographs, there could be another way where we could help differentiate, especially in trying to determine early diagnosis of patients, where CT scanning using this technique could help differentiate AS and OCI. So I'm Anthony Chan reporting for Room Now here in Copenhagen. Thank you. I'm Anthony Chan, consultant rheumatologist from the United Kingdom, reporting at EULA 2022 here in Copenhagen. And today I want to talk to you about gender or sex differences in terms of the clinical outcomes and also imaging in the field of axial spondyloarthritis. Increasingly over the last few years, this has been becoming an increasing topic in terms of how we assess our patient that one size doesn't fit all and we should consider sex differences in our patients when evaluating their clinical outcomes or when we are conducting investigations such as imaging. So male and females may respond differently in terms of treatments that we give them in axial spondyloarthritis. I want to highlight two abstracts that are important here at EULA 22. Uh, firstly is OP0013, which is the uh, study from ULAS and colleagues, uh, where they look at the, um, the appearance on the imaging in terms of patients having uh, axial spondyloarthritis. We know that from our previous understanding, structural changes happen earlier in male patients with axial spondyloarthritis, and in female patients, they tend to have more peripheral arthritis. And this sometimes can lead to delays in diagnosis as a lot of our imaging in axial spondyloarthritis is based on the spine and not in the peripheral joints. In this study where they had over a thousand patients, uh, they looked for the typical changes of uh, in the MRI and in the spine, such as sclerosis, ankylosis, fat metaplasia, and also bone marrow edema and erosions. And what they did is they tried to determine whether the prevalence of these uh, changes on the MRI were more common in either the males or the females. And what they found was in females, there was an increased expression of two types of changes, firstly sclerosis, and then the second one, bone marrow edema. But in the males, they had commonly ankylosis and also fat metaplasia. In particular, the area of ankylosis, this was found to be 40 times 40 uh, odds ratio compared to four in the female group. So there's a 10 time increased prevalence of ankylosis in the male patients compared to female. And I think this is important because as we think about the use of plain radiographs in terms of determining whether patients have ankylosis or whether they are in the non-radiographic arm, these changes may not be very prevalent in the female patients. And perhaps this is why the prevalence of the non-radiographic changes are much common 
commonly seen in females and also the delays in diagnosis can be commoner in females as well as these changes often only detected uh, later on in, um, in x-rays or MRIs uh, and ankylosis is a more common finding in, fem in males compared to females. The second abstract I want to highlight is uh, OP0020 by Hallerman. And this is looking at the, the response of biologics in patients with ankylosing spondylitis. They looked at the Eurospa study where they had uh, four randomized control trials and they were looking at two things. Firstly, the impact of biologics on treatment where they look at the S-CRP at six months. And the percentage improvement was higher uh, in males compared to females. Females had a 15% lower response compared to males at six months using the S-CRP in terms of clinically important improvement. So females responded less well than males in terms of biologic treatment in this study. Secondly, in terms of retention rate, when they went on to 24 months or two years of treatment, there were a fewer females uh, that, than males that, uh, that uh, retained the treatment at, at two years compared to uh, males. So this was higher uh, in, the, in, the, in the male group compared to the females. So again, this is telling us uh, two, two things. Firstly, in terms of how we assess our patients in terms of making a diagnosis using MRI or X-rays, that they may be sex differences. And secondly, when we treat our patients, there may also be differences. Again, the presentation may be different. There might be more axial disease uh, in, in men in the early stages, especially ankylosis, and maybe more peripheral uh, involvement in females in the early stages of disease, hence leading to the differences that we see uh, on the imaging and also in some of the outcomes that we are assessing, which can often be um, more focused on the spine than uh, they are with the peripheral joints. So I think this is an important topic for us to consider going forward, and these two abstracts help us to understand this better. I'm Anthony Chan, reporting for Room Now here at ULA 2022. Thank you. Hello, I'm Anthony Chan. I'm consultant rheumatologist from the United Kingdom, reporting here at ULA 2022 in Copenhagen. And we've had some really interesting presentations this year at uh, ULA. And one of the topics is around axial spondyloarthritis. For many years, we have been using anti-inflammatories, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. And the question is, uh, does it actually retard um, st structural change? Does it help uh, when we use it in combination with biologics? So some really important questions in terms of clinical practice. And I'm delighted that I'm joined uh, by Fabian Prof. Uh, he works in the charity hospital in Berlin. Uh, he's done a lot of work uh, here at EULA. And he's going to talk to us uh, and share with us his insights from the CONSOL study which was presented as an oral presentation on day one. So Fabian, welcome to uh, today's talk. And um, uh, if you could tell us a little bit about the work you've been doing, especially the console study. Thank you. Thank you, Anthony, for having me and uh, yeah, inviting me. I'm delighted to be here with you and speak about our work that um, I had the honor to present, but also the work from my colleague, Murat Togutov. He presented in the same session which started the EULA on Wednesday. This was Axial Spa, new and old treatments. And regarding the end states, I think we are rather speaking about the old treatments, but as you mentioned, really important. How can we retard um, structural changes in the spine? And as we are quite familiar, there were some data suggesting an effect for silicoxib from the WONDER study, where it was shown that um, the patients 
taking uh, silicoxib on a regular basis, continuously every day, they had less radiographic progression than the ones taking silicoxib on demand. And this was also the starting point for our console study that we thought, okay, what it is in the current days where we have biologics available and what is if we are adding silicoxib to a biologic? And this was what we done in the console study. And console um, is a randomized controlled trial and patients with radiographic actual spa and um, especially high risk for radiographic progression. And so these were also one of the inclusion criterions. All patients needed to have either an elevated CRP level or already existing syndesmophytes in, at the screening. And then these were um, all treated with a TNF inhibitor, in this case, golimumab, for 12 weeks as a run-in phase. And only these patients that um, were having a good clinical response, defined as a BASTA improvement at more of more than two points at week 12, were then randomized on a one-on-one -on -one basis to either the combination therapy with golimumab and then had um, continuously every day 400 milligram silicoxib added or in the monotherapy as the control group where they only had continuously the golimumab therapy for two years. And the primary endpoint was the EMSAS change after two years of treatment to baseline. And um, what we saw in this um, cohort, uh, in, this, in this RCT was that there was uh, a numerical higher radiographic progression in the monotherapy arm. This was according to the primary endpoint, the EMSAS change from baseline to year two. But this was also um, evident for um, formation of new syndesmophytes. There was a clear, and this um, new syndesmophytes and the um, agreement of all three readers occurred in 25% in the monotherapy arm versus only 11% in the group which we are taking um, silicoxib continuously. So there is a numerical difference that we could detect but this did not reach statistical significance. And therefore we need to say the console study ended up being negative for um, uh, the, the benefits. But when we are looking more into the data and I, I really believe that either we were just not having enough power because we were um, uh, only, or only including 110 patients, the power calculation, this was also one of the questions from the audience, which was well taken. The power calculation was based on the WANDA study. And I think we need to take into account that here, the patients which were in the control group, they only had NSAIDs on demand and no background therapy. And in the CONSUL study, the uh, control group in, had golimumab as a TNF inhibitor as the control, uh, as the backup arm. And I think this might affect the changes and therefore we mo most likely would have needed a higher number to really make this numerical difference that we could observe statistical significance. So um, my takeaway from the study is that we have to admit that it was not um, significant, the uh, add-on of silicoxib to TNF inhibitor, but it might be um, the numerical differences that we saw might be relevant for patients at a high risk. So if I see a patient and he's having high CRP values, he's already having structural changes in the spine, I would most likely not advise him to take silicoxib on a regular basis, but I would discuss with him to find excuses to take silicoxib. Because if you have a little bit of pain, then I would say, go for it, rather take it. 
if you're not feeling well on the morning and you cannot get out of bed, take it because it might, in addition to the symptomatic effect, also have a structural change effect. And also that I will definitely have this in, uh, take this into account because we can also remember the Enrada study where diclo, diclofenac was uh, assessed and there was no effect. And um, therefore, I think my takeaways are the study ended up negative, but in patients with a high risk of structural uh, progression, there might be a place for um, taking celecoxib more loosely. And also that I will prescribe um, the selective COX-2 inhibitors to my patients where I think the radiographic progression is something that I have to worry about rather than uh, the conventional uh, unselective NSAIDs. Yeah, that's a really important uh, um, key points there. I think there is, uh, as you say, a numerical improvement, which might really translate to a clinical improvement individually to, uh, in our patients. So what is your, in your own clinical practice, <clears throat> if you know that somebody is perhaps a fast progressor, more likely to get radiographic change, and when they may have achieved some improvement uh, on their scores with a biologic, is it uh, your practice to keep them on uh, the NSAIDs for longer? Honestly speaking, no. So far, it, this was not my clinical routine. So I was really in these patients where I was having the feeling that there's high risk for radiographic progression, I was faster of introducing biological therapy. So if there was a patient, even if he was feeling well, but I see that the um, C-reactive protein was still elevated and was not improving, even though the BASDI might be scored quite low because the patient was just, yeah, rough, <laughs> rough taking, um, then I was still saying, look, we know that the CRP value is a high predictor for uh, structural changes, radiographic progression. This might give an impact on your um, future life. So let's have a look, maybe like make another uh, MRI, see if there's still inflammation going on and start a biological treatment, even though if you're not having severe back pain at the moment. Um, but if the patient was doing perfect, was not having a CRP value, and um, I was still not, I was saying take the uh, NSAIDs on demand. And I was just also from the uh, previous data, I was having yeah, uh, quite a tendency for the selective COX-2 inhibitors. Um, whereas I have to say that I was once taking them myself and was not tolerating it well. So this is something that I have to keep in mind, but still um, um, Itori-Coxib and Silicoxib are definitely the two NSAIDs that I'm prescribing the, the most in my uh, actual spa patients. And uh, is there any um, uh, sort of biological uh, explanation for the, uh, the differences between COX-2 and COX-1 in your understanding in terms of radiographic change and the bone level? There are preclinical data that could give a slight uh, explanation. Um, honestly speaking, I was not strongly believing it before the Enrada study. I, I was thinking that uh, also Diclo will might uh, most likely have the same effect. But yeah, there is uh, the, there's evidence for that, um, and now also with this, um, yeah, giving us a slight explanation that it might be more effective on the bone level. Mm -hmm. And were there any? I mean, one of the concerns about using uh, COX two inhibitors or NSAIDs are cardiovascular risks. 
in uh, in in patients. But did you see any of that um, coming out in the study? There we have to be also clear and honest. I mean, we were only investigating 100 patients for a time period of two years. And it's important to say we had not had any, we had a, um, a pulmonary embolism, but this was in the monotherapy arm, which was might most likely uh, associated just with the disease itself. And um, also when we are looking back into uh, registry data, uh, there's also um, yeah, somehow in the first moment, not really clear data that NSAID intake might even reduce cardiovascular risk or uh, events. And, and also from my understanding, I, I think um, the most risk, uh, the, the, the highest risk factor for cardiovascular disease is the inflammation itself. And I think if we treat the inflammation better with biologics, but also with NSAIDs, we will reduce the risk for a cardiovascular event. So I'm not so, so, so afraid of using them um, still, I mean, which is also quite clear if I have a patient having already high risk factors um, for cardiovascular events because of previous uh, events or, or high, high cardiovascular risk factors, I'm more conservative with prescribing NSAIDs or uh, selective COX-2 inhibitors. But yeah, in general, uh, the, our actual spark cohort is rather younger, is uh, quite healthy, is not having too many comorbidities. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm quite confident of prescribing uh, NSAIDs also in this cohort, also on a long-term basis. Yeah, so actively treat the inflammation um, because that's, that itself is a risk for more cardiovascular disease itself. Um, and also in one of the... Um, Topics that was presented was the GESPIC study or the GESPIC cohort, which you're also very, uh, very much involved in. Uh, how do you see that uh, sort of link to your to the work that you're doing? And this is also this is an important part of my understanding of the whole matter of um, NSAIDs and selective COX-2 inhibitors and uh, actual spa because Murat Togutab, he also from our department, he was presenting the 10-year data of the GESPIC cohort focusing on radiographic spinal progression and the effect of NSAIDs and also the differentiation between um, uh, um, unselective and selective COX-2 inhibitors. And he showed that there was an effect um, of NSAID intake over the 10 years of treatment, which was more pronounced in the radiographic uh, group of GASPIC than in the non-radiographic group, which makes sense because I think these patients are having just per se a higher risk for radiographic progression and there you can yeah just have a, a higher impact when you treat the inflammation and uh, treat the, the radiographic progression better and it was also shown that the selective cox2 inhibitors are having a stronger effect than the unselective so i think when just combining the observational cohort data from gaspic together with the rct data from konsu I would truly believe that there is an effect um, of NSAIDs in, uh, in general, which is stronger pronounced uh, from the selective COX-2 um, inhibitors, which is even stronger pronounced in radiographic patients and especially in those having high risk for radiographic progression. And yeah, my assumption is that most likely just the power of our console study was not high enough to show this effect um, on a significant uh, statistical basis. Yes, yeah, so um, there might be some uh, further research 
into this area uh, going forward. Uh, and we Absolutely. know that in male male patients, uh, they tend to be they tend to progress quicker than, than female patients. One of the uh, key topics that have been coming out is the gender differences or sex differences in these patients. Um, your study obviously wasn't designed to uh, to kind of answer that question, but do you think in terms of you know, research question going forward, is that a, is that something that we would need to consider in terms of the whole topic of radiographic progression and the role of NSAIDs? It might make sense, especially because just as you said, it is, um, we know that a male gender, HLEB27 positivity, high disease activity, these are the main risk factors for uh, radiographic spinal progression. And um, also, I mean, we had a quite typical uh, radiographic axis bar cohort and, and console, but um, the numbers, if we would then make a, a subgroup analysis, the numbers are, are going down. But if we would select uh, the ideal patient cohort and having only male patients um, with high disease activity, which are uh, most likely to progress, and treat those and randomize those on uh, silicoxib. I, I would assume that it might give a stronger hint uh, that uh, yeah, silicoxib is really preventing radiographic spinal progression. And so Which this is what will, yeah, absolutely. And this is what I think is also one of the takeaways that I will uh, implement in my clinical practice, because I think this is also when we are discussing it here, what can the rheumatologist, what can the actual uh, uh, spa expert do differently uh, Monday or Tuesday when he's coming back uh, to his office or she's coming back to her office. And this is what I think is my takeaway, my personal takeaway that I really finding an excuse in those patients where I see high risk for radiographic spinal progression for selective COX-2 inhibitor in addition to their biologic. Yeah, so select your patients carefully, uh, assess their risk factors, think of treat inflammation, and in those patients, probably a slight preference for COX-2, uh, I think were your, some of your key messages. Going Absolutely. forward in the future, staring into the future, uh, what do you think are the key uh, topics for us to be uh, thinking about in terms of this whole idea of radiographic progression and the role of uh, the treatments we have? Yeah. What will be your take on this? Yes, I think what was also presented last year from the Gaspic cohort, where um, also Murat and Dennis Podubny could uh, perfectly show that a longer time period of uh, TNF inhibition was needed to see the effect on the radiographic spinal progression, which was also, um, for me, perfectly explaining the differences in, uh, in, in the literature that we saw, because when we are just looking after two years, there might not be such a strong uh, effect, but we, when we are looking uh, on the longer data or when the treatment was longer time ago. Um, this made sense to me. Um, also from preclinical data, um, IL-17 inhibition seems to have even uh, um, maybe even a stronger uh, effect on radiographic spinal progression. And um, the SURPASS study where exactly this question is targeted in a head-to-head -head design, IL-17A inhibition versus TNF inhibitor. Um, this is, I think, the hot topic on the radiographic spinal progression because this might even change our clinical routine if we see that one or the other mode of action is having uh, a stronger effect on in inhibiting um, structural changes in the spine. This would be, for me personally, a very strong argument to um, yeah, prioritize this uh, mode of action in my clinical routine. 
And also we need to take into account the, that with uh, JAK inhibitors, um, also here the upadacitinib data on non-radiographic were presented at the EULA. So we have now um, with uh, upadacitinib one JAK inhibitor also for radiographic and non-radiographic um, that might be a treatment option. This is something where we don't have any uh, structural progression data yet and which will be very interesting to see here the long-term data and to see how JAK inhibition will um, yeah, perform when compared to uh, the yeah, older biological treatments that are already available. So a very important outcome in the, in the new modes of action as we learn about these drugs. Structural or radiographic progression is going to be quite an important outcome, not just in terms of efficacy, but also understanding about the disease itself. Uh, the nature of the condition. Fabian, it's been great to talk to you. We could talk all night. Uh, you have so much uh, interesting data you presented to us to increase our body of knowledge uh, at EULA. And I look forward to uh, seeing more of your work in our future meetings. Um, so thank you very much for uh, joining us uh, and giving us your insights into a very important and also critical topic in the whole field of exospondyloarthritis. So uh, thanks for your time tonight, and um, we look forward to hearing more from you in the future. Anthony, thanks for having me. It was such a pleasure to be able to see each other uh, in person at the EULA, and I'm really much looking forward to our next encounter. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.